The Memphis of Rocky Flats. Chapter 1. I don't like what Operation Iraq Freedom has done to me. I went to the war as soldier. I came back a vampire. Two weeks after President Bush stood on the deck of the aircraft car- carrier Abraham Lincoln and declared mission accomplished. Victory over Saddam Hussein, we and the 3rd Infantry Division were still as deep in a combat along <clears throat> the Afrates Valley. Tonight we were after Fadain guerrillas in a village south of Karbala. My ferry team hunkered inside the troop compartment of our Bradley fighting vehicle. Dirt sifted through the open hatches above. Each of us wore 40 pounds of gear like a hide, armor vest, helmet, radio, protective mask. Lots and lots of ammo and grenades, under which we mar- marinated a greasy funk. Days of grinding mechanics combat saddled us with a fictic as thick as the grime caking our weary bodies. Each of us had bloodshot eyes and was squeezy from bombardments, delivered danger close. Our artifactly, the Air Force and the Navy demolished entire city blocks while we waited across the street. Our officers joked that we were smiling the enemy with an ass-kicking of biblical preparations. We'd get the warning, drop low, cover our ears, and open our mouths to equalize the pressure. The blast bounced us off the ground. Our eyeballs rattled in their orbits. Dust smothered us. Concussions from the bombs would slam into my belly, and I felt like I had gotten run over by a parade of buicks. A painful spasm twisted my insides. I didn't tell anyone that I had started pissing blood. If I were evacuated, who would take care of my men? It was my duty to get them out of this shithole alive and in one piece. Our Bradley veered sharply to the left and right as if following a rat through a maze. The abrupt movements jostled us in the darkness of the troop compartment. Machine gun fire rattled along the steel armor skirt. My jaw clenched. The worst part of the war was that everyone played for keeps. Our Bradley cling to a stop. The turret basic swiveled to the left. The 25mm cannon answered the enemy with a comforting wham wham wham. Staff Sergeant Kulatowski dropped from his seat to turret basket. He flicked on the flashlight, clamped to his armor vest, and a blue-green glow illuminating my team's anxious, dirty faces. Kulatowski pulled aside the boom Mike of his crewman's helmet and yelled, Gomez, when you unasked, led your team to the left. There's a humeave with the Lieutenant Roger, I yelled back. He could have told me this through my radio, but I think he wanted to look at his men one last time in case he never saw us alive again. Soft-hearted bastard. Good luck, Kotowski shouted and turned off the flashlight. He climbed back in his seat. The Bradley groaned forward. The turret machine gun let loose and joined the chorus of staccato blasts from the Bradleys flanking us. I knelt against the ramp and held a strap to steady myself. Private O'Brien readied his M20, M249 machine gun and looped the belt of ammunition over his left arm. The other men in the team crowded next to me. All of us tight, warm ball of fear. The Bradley halted, my shoulder banged against the hull. The ramp winched open. 
We ran out, our heads scrunched into the neck wells of our armor vests. My index finger reached across the trigger guard of my com- carbine. Our Bradley was parked close to a long mud brick wall, the front of a low lopsided row of houses that stretched across the block. The other Bradleys from our platoon blocked the answer to ugh, intersections before and beyond us. Standing guard like immense were elephants, garbage litter the street. The night air was filmy with dust, ugh, slivers, and light escaped from shuttered windows. We stayed behind cover, squeezing between the Bradley and the flaking plaster wall as we moved toward the humeave. From the top of the humeave, the machine gunner behind an armor shield aimed a searchlight at the front door of a home. In the cone of the light, the lieutenant and a gaunt Iraq interpreter banged on the wooden door. The harsh light reduced their forms to broken salahoots. The interpreter twisted the doorknob and beat the door harder as he yelled frantically in Arabic. His tense voice revealed fear, not anger. Enough, the lieutenant shouted. We're not here to sell Avon. He drew his pistol and pushed the interpreter aside. The lieutenant aimed his automatic at the keyhole below the doorknob. O'Brien and I crouched beside the lieutenant like a pair of twitching junkyard dogs waiting to attack. The lieutenant fired once. The knob flew away in a shower of splinters. He reared back and kicked the door open to the shrieks of female voices. We sprang forward and panned the room with our weapons. Three Iraq women huddled like frightened birds in one corner. Their ashen faces hovered above trembling hands. They clenched their back, black shawls to their throats. Were they a mother and her daughters? They eyed us fearfully. Their gazes fixed on the night vision goggles clipped to the front of our helmets. Rumor was the Iraqis thought the goggles gave us extra vision and we could see through their clothing. A swing electric bulb lit the room. Shadows danced across the walls, broken furniture, loose plasters, and paper lay scattered over a threadbare carpet. The interpreter entered and was followed by the lieutenant. Pistol in hand, he yelled at the interpreter and the woman. Why didn't you open the door? Where are you, men? The interpreter turned to the woman. When they heard his Arabic, they sounded... Surrounded him, gesturing and screaming angry questions. The oldest woman gave the best performance, repeatedly pressing a hand to her forehead and swooping her other arm and the ruin in her home. An explosion shook the house. We ducked against the close wall. The woman dropped to the floor with practically agility. Dust trickled from the ceiling. The lieutenant answered his radio and then hollered, Sergeant Gomez, we got contact. Get around back as soon as possible. No shit. We got contact. My team dashed into the next room, tramping over unmade beds and knocking over dressers. There was a flimsy wood door along the back wall that I busted open. We emerged into an alley, barren and spooky, reaching to the front of my helmet. I flipped the night vision goggles down over my eyes. A greenish image of materialized inside the lenses. A fuzzy picture of a dark background cluttered with bright, abstract shapes, hustling to what remained of a brick wall. I lay prone amid to rubble while my team took positions alongside. The lieutenant whispered excitedly over the tiny earpiece of my radio. Four, maybe six. 
Bedane dropped into a kennel about 50 meters past the alley. He ordered me to make my men to the berm. Overlooking the kennel, while another team flushed the Fidean towards us, we crept down the slope to the kennel bank. Our flexes primed as we expected the enemy to open up at any second. I went up to the barn first and snaked on my belly to the top. My heart thumped so loud I was afraid the enemy would hear it. O'Brien startled me when he groped at the dirt to lie down behind his M249. His eyes reflected the dim green light coming from the back lenses of night vision goggles. The rest of my team joined us on the berm. How many of these guys do you think we gotta kill before we can go home? O'Brien whispered. I'm pretty sure it's all of them, I answered. Too bad they don't stay in one place. This war would be over that much sooner if everyone cooperated. From the depths of the images and my lenses appeared four figures moving like specters along the muddy bank of the volcano. My breath quickened. The enemy was close enough to see that they carried equipment over their shoulders, explosives perhaps, rocket-propelled grenades, RPGs. They moved, howlingly and whispered in Arabic. Their implements clinged together. The lieutenant blurted over the radio, get ready, in a quiet voice. I alerted my team as one we shouldered our weapons and curled index fingers over triggers. The machine gun to my left crowded, spewing a cassette of red traces. O'Brien opened up. An M203 barked, lobbing a grenade into the center of the enemy. We got the Irix in a thick crossfire against the bank of the Kino. The four intruders withered under a hail of traces and the white flash of grenades exploding among them. I fixed on the falling bodies and fired quick bursts, snailing each one in turn. The lieutenant's loud voice sang over the roar of our guns. Cease fire, God damn it! We released the triggers the blast from our guns ringing in my ears. The spent brace casing still whirling in the air pinged on the ground. An inconsistent swirl of smoke rose from the hot, glowing barrel of the M249. I flipped the goggles up from my eyes. My heart pounded in euphoric victory. The moment was exhilarating. My senses taunt as a tripwire. I could hear the smile in O'Brien's voice as he said, Damn, that felt nice. A wail rose from the body sprawled on the water's edge. Not a man's cry, but the shriek of a girl. A horrible noise that told me my life would never be the same again. The lieutenant and three other men crept down to the berm and gathered around the fallen bodies. I pushed up to my feet to join them, the girls well tearing at my nerves. The lieutenant produced a flashlight and swung its blue-green beam over the area. A girl in a knee-length dress lay face up on the dirt. She looked maybe 12 years old, screaming. She stared at us, her eyes so wide with fright that her pupils seemed to hover above the whites of her eyeballs. Her thin... <clears throat> Legs pumped up, bumped at the ground as she tried to push away from us. Her right hand covered her belly. Blood seeped through her fingers. Two men in black robes lay beside each other. Mouths gaping, arms and legs ragged with ugly wounds. Each woman rested across a pole. Ropes lay twisted from the ends of the 
exposed to plastic jugs, an Iraq with mustache, beard, and a checkered head with dress squirmed on his back, squeezing his moment was shut in the grimace of pain. Oh, God, oh, God. One of the soldiers sobbed. What have we done? Orion kicked the plastic jugs and his voice broke. They were just haycocks trying to get water. Other soldiers had killed civilians by mistake. The bad breaks of war. I thought at the time, now that I've done it, the earth seemed to heave beneath my boots. I became dizzy and fought the urge to throw up. The Iraq man raised an army and blindly called Annie. The girl pulled herself down towards him, crying out. The man's arms dropped, his face slackened. The girl shrieked louder, realizing that she was alone, wounded, and surrounded by us, a gang of assassins. Ah, shit, the lieutenant kept repeating. He took off his helmet and ran a trembling hand over his beer cup. He called the company commander over the radio. After a brief, tense exchange, the lieutenant released his radio mic. His shoulders drooped as if the world had landed on him. We gotta evacuate her as soon as possible. I inked open the first aid pouch attached to my armor vest and snatched the bandage. Somebody give me Pondo <clears throat> Panko now. I tore open the plastic wrapper, pulled apart the ends of the bandage, and knelt beside the girl. She shrank from me, her face pale with terror. We unfolded O'Brien's Panko and tried to coax the girl onto it, but she kept scooting away. O'Brien grabbed her hands and held them in a corner of the Panko while another soldier clutched her feet. I had to expose the wound and drew the A on it to cut. Her blood soaked dress across the middle. Howling maniacally, the girl whipped her body across against the panko before going limp. She whimpered in Arabic. It wasn't enough that we had shot her in the belly and slaughtered her family. She must have thought now we were going to rape her as well. Love flowed from a hole beside her navel. I pressed the gauze pad against the wound. Her warm blood soaked my hands. I reached under her tiny waist to tie the ends of the bandage around her. How could this have happened? I knew what I have seen through the girl goes. How could I have been so wrong? We carried the girl away from the cano, her cracking voice echoing across the desolation. The night disintegrated into a dismobler. <clears throat> O'Brien slowed and tucked as his end of the panko. Hold up. We shuffled to a halt. A revolver of blood poured from the panko. We laid the girl on the ground. O'Brien put his fingers on her throat. Tell the medics not to bother. He crossed himself. Grief cracked my body. I felt pain from the bottoms of my feet to the inside of my skull. The agony squeezed my heart, compressing so hard I thought it would burst. White traces slattered around us. Dolting with terror, we dove and scattered. The bullets sauntered us. One thumped against my armor vest, another slapped the carbon from my hand. RPGs exploded around me, knocking the helmet from my head. Dirt pelted my skin, my ears rang from the concussion, and for what seemed like an instant, I blacked out. Dazed, I pushed myself off the ground and staggered painfully to my feet. The fighting had stopped. I called to my team, but saw that I was alone, surrounded by the bodies of the Iraq civilians we had killed. 
Where was my unit? Had they left from dead? With trembling fingers, I clenched a grenade. The silence betrayed nothing. Even the enemy was gone. I hobbled to the top of the bank, shivering like a frightened, wounded animal. At the fear end of the alley, a bale of fire consumed the humeve. Flames jumped up from the houses, gulping for breath. I tasted ashes and fear. I turned to my left as if following a meridian that pointed their way to safety. Picking my way through the rubble of the brick wall, I limped for the closest dwelling. A strange force pulling me as I stumbled over debris littering the three sold. Smoke and clouded the interior, rolling up the walls and escaping through a hole in the ceiling. I crept to a window. I stayed hidden inside the gloom and glimpsed outside. The candle twisted below like a piece of beaten pewter on the banks lay the forms of the Iraqs. The girl's dress shimmered against the dark earth. Her blood glistened on my fingers. Bloody handprints stained my trousers. Confusions and shame coiled around me. I felt as if my uniform were strangling me. I was no hero. I was a murderer. I pulled at my collar where we'd have been sent to kill the in- enemy in the name of freedom. And instead we had masquerade an innocent family. Our great cause was a sham. I did I didn't want anything more to do with this stupid war. Smoke drift through a door leading to another room. The force that had drawn me here led me to the door. In the next room, a man tending a flame poking a long stick at the coals followed on the dirt floor. He wore a tattered vest over a dirty robe. His head turned toward me, a mustache, beard, and a bushy hair outlining a drawn face. His eyes shone like those of a wolf, two red shiny disc. My reflex was to flee, but his gaze held me with a power. They reached through my eyes and seized my thoughts. His will become mine. He commanded, come here. His voice came from inside my head. It was not in Arabic, nor in English, but was a soothing tone that cut through my delirium to promise relief from despair. You need no weapon. I let the grenade drop, not caring if the pin still secured the safety lever. I approached with my hands raised, my fingers mottled with the blood of the Iraq girl. The stranger grasped with hands and brought them to his face, smearing my dirty, bloody fingers against his cheeks and nose. Nothing is as precious as the blood of the innocent. He put a hand on my shoulder and stared into my eyes. It is the girl's blood that torments you. Why? His question pumped more anguish into me. I choked on my words. I didn't mean to kill her. It was a mistake. I didn't know. I was wrong. You are a soldier. You kill. That is your job. My job isn't to kill the innocent. The stranger stroked my neck with the back of his hand as if he desired what was within my throat. I wanted to recoil in revolution, revolution, but the strange hypnotic trance overpowered my instinct to escape. Death would end the guilt. The stranger's grin threatened more than it reassured. You want to die? I forced myself to shake my head since my body no longer felt like my own. He yanked my armor vest and pulled me off balance. I fell to my knees in front of him. He cradled my head in his rough hands and his thoughts materialized inside my head. 
If not death, then suffering would appease his guilt. Is that what you want? I whispered, we didn't come here to slaughter children and their mothers. If someone must be punished, then make it me. Hold me accountable. Punishment. How noble of you, soldier. Everyone else begs for mercy. I can make this pleasant, but you want to suffer. His face approached me. His lips parted, and intense creepiness overcame me. A horrid sensation like hundreds of spiders crawling over my skin, but I could do nothing except let him turn my head to expose the left side of my neck. Most lips touched my skin. Two sharp points punctured my flesh. I clenched my fist to endure the pain. The drumming of my heart beat slower. The muscles relaxed. The medanning distress spinning in my head dissolving into a dreamy, pulsating haze. A coolness crept up my lens to my torso. My toes and fingers began to tangle. The fog in my brain thickened. The shroud of death brushed over me. Then the stranger pressed his mouth against mine and a salty ooze of blood washed over my tongue. My throat burned as if acid had been poured into me. My guts twisted and writhed like a snake set afire. I tried to retch, but he held me tight against him. When I started to convulse, he let go and my body jerked into feverish spasms. I lay on my side and looked up at him, an orange aura like the glow from the hot coals surrounding him. He wiped blood from his chin. I gasped for the words, Who are you? I am the damned son of Nadelia, the undead queen of the Tigris and Emphritz. His answer was drenched in bitterness and self-loathing. I dragged myself away from him, the orange glow radiating from my hands as well. My insides thrashed in panic. Undead? He nodded, and I've given you what you wanted, a punishment even worse than death. I've given you immortality as a vampire. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.